0: ...on the phone with our, our IT or uh, the mic people now. Me and Barton's mics were both not working, so it's, it's like there was placebo. Oh, it's it wouldn't start because it's cold outside. A ah, no, couple of uh, reminder announcements here. Uh, Theology on Tap is this Wednesday at 7 Um, lay theology conference coming up on saturday february 3rd from 8 to noon you can register on the church website or the week at a glance at this point uh we don't have very many registrations so if you're planning to come or thinking you might come please register for that especially i mean really we we all have iphone we all have smartphones now um and and if we if you don't you're at least you're uh, affected by phones in some way so uh that's the idea is is the way that the online technology, especially the accessibility on our phones, how it impacts us um, as Christians and, and in, our, in our relationships with one another. So it's evaluating that and how we can maybe handle that better and think about it more deliberately in our, especially as Christians. Um, and uh, talking to like Principal Dunwell on this, it's funny, like every, did you, every, every individual family, every person, is convinced that their kids are perfect. It's everyone else's kids that's are problem. Until like the kids are actually when they're older and actually making really some, some very may, maybe bad decisions we'd say and then they're able to say at that point, man I wish I would have so it's, it's challenging with a, with, as an elementary school to, to you're trying to impact parents when at a time when they don't see the long-term problems. What is helpful right now though, is we are, we are given a, a substantial amount of data. Like when I was, the, cell, the iPhone came out in like 08, I think I got one in '09. I was already at seminary. So like a lot of my foundational learning had happened um, my, my brain was hopefully mostly developed at that point. Um, but we didn't see like, what, what would happen if we like stick an iPad into a five-year-old's lap and then just grow, have their brain develop as they're like watching an iPad. And, and, and is there a difference in learning your numbers and letters on an iPad and playing games? It's a game and it's, 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 it's accessible and it keeps the kid quiet. Right? And we'll just kind of raise them on that thing. And then all of a sudden, we've got a 15-year-old on our hand, and if you like, walk into any of our, our high school classes, you know, you know, everybody's, if they're allowed to, we've, the rules kind of, the, the, the high, at a high school level, are trying to restrict, find ways to restrict cell phone usage, but kids are just glued on their phones. And it shouldn't surprise us because we kind of are too. We're addicted to the the response, the uh, dopamine response of like hitting your email and getting a response or notifications through social media—that all that all impacts the dopamine responses in the, responses in the brain. Where when you when you check your email and you get an email, if you got it, if you got the same email every time, it wouldn't actually impact you the same way. And if you check your social media and you had predictable responses, it wouldn't impact you the same way. But the fact is we have inconsistency. Well, sometimes you have an interesting email, sometimes not interesting. Sometimes you have a, uh, a Facebook notification that really like gets you mad or happy or whatever. Uh, or you wanna see ho- who likes certain things and all these different things play, play with your brain and to, to bring stimuli to uh, maybe make us addicted to those, to those uh, responses and addicted to our phones our brains as adults are developed, but as the brain is developing, this has even more substantial impacts on the human brain. So that's just like the biological impact, but then also the, the, um, the impact where we see also currently, why is it that like, I mean, the statistics are just crazy. I'm not, I'm not gonna make it up, but an extremely high percentage of teenagers are depressed and anxious, anxiety. My kids are anxious and uh, dealing with anxiety. Um, suicide is on the rise and why is this they spent their whole life comparing themselves to what they're seeing everybody else's lives on the phone so the, as we would say as Christians the ninth and 10th commandments covening what everybody else has and uh, you typically only put the stuff online. I mean, you're not really embracing all your blemishes online. You're only putting you're rejoicing in all the perfect things and the great things and the you kind of like airbrush your life and you post that on social media, and that's what everyone looks at when they're looking at social media, and their life doesn't measure up. And so then they become just naturally depressed. And naturally FOMO takes over, like this fear of missing out on what other people have and judging my life as being somehow. Uh, inadequate and it robs us of joy right because we're not oh, I'm not doing enough and they need to be doing what they're doing I'm not happy unless I'm doing what they're doing and on and on. we're judging ourselves by others so um, the, the psychological impact on children as well as adults that's kind of what this is going to look at theologically the pastor Connor who'll be here on February 3rd um, we have offered free child care for that the thing about offering free child care to people is like you have to actually get babysitters. So if you're interested, <laughs> uh, we, we haven't had anybody register yet uh, interested in child care. We expect a lot of last minute registrations. Um, we are using this uh, from, a, from like an evangelical mission perspective to try to tap into some of the, the many families in, in, in your school. I'll say it this way. We are, we are blessed. I've talked to many of my pastor colleagues. We have this remarkable opportunity where we've got so many like unchurched, and they would even, I would say, Christians, conservative Christians, who like the well, like conservative worldview, what we define as what the Ten Commandments lays out for us. A life that has us knowing what a man and a woman are, knowing what murder is, knowing what stealing is, all that kind of stuff. People want that in their children. Um, but they, did, they, want that as, they want that fruit, but they don't, it's like they don't even know that there's a tree and roots that need to be planted and raised, right? So we're about in the school is, is, is grounding these roots um, and then feeding, the, feeding the faith of these children, but also, I would say even more importantly, the parents. Because no matter how many four-year-olds tell us they want to come to church on Sunday, they can't drive, <laughs> Right? So really, the parents, and, and statistically, again, the, the impact of the, the faith life of the parent at home is, like, insurmountable. It's like it, it, is the, it is the most impactful thing on the, on the life, the, the longevity of faith, and the children. So if, if, the, if we are ignoring the faith development in the homes of people, it's hard to expect. I mean, surely, it's, in fact, we're teaching the kids about Jesus, four and five years old, and then they leave us, but mom and dad are teaching them there's other gods that are more important in this world well eventually it kind of the faith kind of seems to die out so um we're, we're trying to be more increasingly mindful with our, looking at our preschool i say our preschool as an opportunity we have all these young people who are kind of naive of like i've got they, they want the end result but they don't even know how to get there and they they're, they're in many ways susceptible to learning more about the Christian faith. A lot of times they're just, they're just lazy, or they are what all of us are. We're addicted to all the other gods of this world. So, it's, I can't, I, So like, for example, the Lay Theology Conference, I'm not even calling it the Lay Theology Conference because the, the, the words lay in theology are going to be, un, un, you're not going to understand that if you're not already understanding it. Like you guys understand what the word lay as opposed to pastoral and theology as opposed to whatever else. Like they just don't know. so you're calling it like we're calling it a family conference and trying to get people in. but still Saturday mornings there is uh, soccer, like all the other all the other things that are, Important and, and, and they would say equally important or even more important for these children. And so we, it's hard to build in these parents an understanding of what a false God looks like and what the long term impacts of that are. So, um, as you're, we, we I, I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but the, it's it's a cool thing to have access to so many young families and we can just like, throw together an event. I mean, like yesterday, uh, Linda put together, I say throw together, she took a long time to craft all this. <laughs> but it's the, the idea of having an event. We just had an event here last, yesterday for like targeting preschool families. We had a guy stand right here and, and do some, some like fun little kid songs and dance around for uh, 45 minutes. We had like well over 120 people here, mostly preschool. Many of whom were like unchurched some I think maybe 50 percent or so were tied to our preschool, but the other half are just from Facebook and they show up. So it's amazing. In Naperville, we're in like the boonies of like Nebraska. You try that event, you know who shows up? No one. Not even your members. But here it's like we have to all these people. So we're trying to find ways to crack in. And I say all that to preface: we're going to try to make a more intentional effort in these next few years of saying, okay, what can we do to try to hit, to try to crack into these families, to try to. Uh, teach the faith to the to the to the parents to the children, and at times it's going to mean we need we need you we need as much as like I could say I'm gonna I'm gonna teach a conference I'm gonna have Pastor Bartons watch the kids would you leave your kids with Pastor Bartons? <laughs> Just our youth pastor? <laughs> no, I mean little kids. Uh, well, the idea is like if any of you are interested in childcare for for the Lay Theology Conference. Um, you, any little bit can help. So we, we're looking, looking uh, for volunteers for that. And I'll be, once we get more of an understanding of how many people there are, if we have like three kids, that's certainly easier than 20 kids over the age of one. So we'll cross that bridge. Uh, Diaper Drive, uh, starting off today, continuing for the next two weeks. There's a pack and play in the Narthex um, there's a list of things on the pack and play and also in the week at a glance like di- traditionally we do diapers that's the main thing but there's lots of other things too uh, that we can contribute and just throw them in the pack and play youth group is next sunday it was scheduled for today pastor barton's out of town so it'll be next sunday and then last our 20-something group uh, that we started this past fall what we kind of found is uh, we were trying to combine the college kids and the, and the post-college kids, and that wasn't necessarily working. Part of the problem was we were only meeting once a month, so we're going to attempt to meet every week coming up this uh, on next Thursday, January 25th, meeting every Thursday. So that's for our twenty-something-ish members. And non-members. you we, like, we got like three random people from the community found out about this Bible study and they're coming, like showing up. Like, just magic. Like three 24-year-old young men who just wanted to learn the Bible. They show up. I'm like, uh, why are you here? Are you a terrorist? <laughs> Apparently, there's this whole like subculture in Naperville. They're like Bible study groupies. They go to like Good Shepherd, the, that monster church by Costco on 59, Calvary something. And then uh, what's the one that somebody was? Compass church. And so they, they kind of bounce around between those. We, had a, we have a young adult Bible study. They show up. <laughs> That's cool. Um, it's interesting to see they all have the same questions and the same concerns. So it's fun to address that need, which prior to this year, we haven't really been. We have this. So I tell them, come to Bible study on Sunday morning. I don't know why they don't, but they, some of them. Uh, is there a question to comment? Yes. Yeah. I think Steve Lindemeyer plays the banjo. Um, Sue Dumford tells some really good jokes right, right off the cuff. So like stand up hour with Sue Dumford, you know, any kind of random thing. It'll be fun. So if you got something hidden away that, that you can you can share with the with us, that would be would be phenomenal. And you'll look yeah, look for registration uh, for that on the on the week at a glance and the church website as well, or email Linda. All right. Let's jump into Luke. So um Luke 22 will wrap up today for sure. And then uh, 23, we get into the crucifixion. So you saw our handout. Lots of words and not so many pictures on your handout today, I apologize. Um, I just, I needed the space for the words. So if you remember where we were, Peter has, so Jesus has been arrested from the garden of Gethsemane. He's been dragged to Annas and Caiaphas in his night trial, he's being mocked. Um, As that trial is taking place, Peter, that was kind of the, the focal point of our conversation last week, Peter is out in the kind of the courtyard area outside the trial, and he has denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus came out, and then they they kind of make eye contact, and the rooster crows. And then they're bringing, now they're taking Jesus to yet another trial. Um, So this is Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Now that's just the interesting thing there, they're holding, they've got Jesus in custody. So it's like, it's this, it's like when you, the, the, the Superman, every time you see Superman, whenever you see Superman in handcuffs, you know that he's just going along with it, right? <laughs> so, uh, so it is here, we've got the one who creates, through whom heaven and earth were created, who certainly has all the power, Uh, in the universe is is allowing himself to be arrested he is coming before us and before his people in weakness and in lowliness self-chosen weakness and just allowing this arrest to occur Um, he sets it aside he's being arrested they're mocking him and beating him and he's just taking it they also blindfolded him before I get to this next part so they're holding him in custody unjustly they're mocking him Just stop there, just mocking him. Today, you mock one person, federal offense, hate speech. (laughs) Now they're mocking him and beating him. He's in custody and the whole thing is unjust. This is just the start of the injustice that's given to Jesus. They also blindfolded him. So the one who sees all, the the all knowing Jesus, all knowing God is then blindfolded. And then they keep asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you now, apparently this was a game some of the commentators were talking about this a game that was common among like the soldiers when they would arrest someone it's kind of like in college or high school football i think it's illegal now like a guy would stand in the middle and then everyone all the other football players would be around they call bull in the ring and then like the coach would call your number and you go and you hit the guy in the middle and you run back to your spot and then the coach calls a different number you're just like taking turns and, it's teaching people to be tough, right? Uh, it's actually a fun game, especially as the giver, not the receiver. But in this case, you're blindfolded and you're just like punching the guy and saying, who, who hit you, I guess? It's like heads up, seven up, but more violent, right? <laughs> not exactly heads up, seven up, but close. Um, but the word, the word I, wanna, I wanna focus on for a moment is this, is this word prophesy. Prophesy. Who is this struck? So obviously, when the soldiers say prophesy, so Jesus is being understood to be a prophet, and they think Jesus. So, so Jesus, you're such a big prophet. Prophesy. Tell us who struck you. So in their mind, if they were to define for us what is a prophet, what would they say? A prophet is someone who what? The psychic. The psychic. So it wasn't this. Not the future, especially here. It's tell us who struck you. Past them. knowing. Knowing what you otherwise would not know, unless you had some kind of like supernatural ability. Um, that's not the biblical idea of a prophet. There's a, there's a difference between like a for, a fortune teller and, and especially like someone who can consult with the dead. Remember when Saul goes and talks to the witch of Endor? So he goes past the Ewoks and he finds the witch of Endor. <laughs> <laughs> a very limited audience for that joke. <laughs> Uh, he finds the witch of Endor and he's, he's wanting to talk. He's consulting with the dead. Like there's a knowledge that I can get from, from, the, from the deceased, the ghostly spiritual realm. That's, so that, there is that. But that is not what a prophet is. A prophet is specifically, and we see it in the Old Testament, like in every case. It clearly, most especially in, in like uh, Ezekiel and in Isaiah. Ezekiel is kind of nice because he says, here's the scroll. Eat the scroll." Isaiah 2, I put my words on your lips. So first, remember Isaiah 6, I have un, I'm a man of unclean lips, and the guy cleans his lips, and then he sends him to speak the gospel with those lips, to speak God's words with those lips. So the point is, what the prophet speaks is only what God has given him to speak. The, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to us, to his people, and also back to God. So you think Moses when Moses is speaking to God's people telling them to repent but he's also turning back to God and saying God don't destroy these people these are your people you let them out of Egypt and if you destroy them you're going to look bad God is the one who sent Moses to tell his people to repent but also to speak back to himself. It's interesting and that's important because Jesus is the ultimate prophet prophet priest and king prophet as he's speaking God's word to us but also speaking, reconciling, or speaking this, this word of, uh, 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 what's the word, he's speaking in between us and God the Father, mediating, uh, pleading for mercy for us on our behalf, back to God the Father. So in that sense, prophecy often, especially in the Old Testament, the word prophecy is going to have future implications Because, especially in the Old Testament, their salvation was always a future reality, both by way of those who were being set free from exile, or also a future judgment spoken to the Israelites for the coming judgment that they were going to be brought into exile. And then, when they're in exile, the prophecy that they're going to be taken out, they're going to have salvation from exile, be taken back to the promised land. But then, the entire time, the entirety of the Old Testament is ultimately this prophecy of the coming Messiah. This future promise of Jesus. But it's only future, like from the Old Testament perspective. Now that Jesus is here, the, the your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, as Acts 2 puts it. So to prophesy, in, in the New Testament sense especially, is to simply speak the gospel. Because to prophesy is to speak God's word, especially words about. power about God, about the Gospel. So whenever you have a three-year-old singing, Jesus loves me, this is of the same genre of prophecy from the Old Testament. It's so much clearer for us in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they are talking about the coming the promised salvation. New Testament, we're talking about salvation. But it's kind of, so you disconnect it from a future, like a crystal ball fortune telling kind of an aspect. That's what they have here. That's what they're thinking it is. Uh, certainly, God has that, too. He knows in his omniscience, he knows all things. So the the other interesting thing about the prophet is when so God puts his words on the prophet's lips and they accomplish that which he wants to accomplish. So even when the prophet doesn't want to, to do anything, this will be the theme of next Sunday's Old Testament lesson with Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to be there. He, he, he despises like Nineveh, he's half-hearted. So he had to get eaten by fish and vomited on the shore. And then he kind of walks around Nineveh saying, repent. And then what happens? The entire nation repents because it's not Jonah, it's God's word. So too with, in our day, it's the forgiveness of sins that's spoken. So God says, go forgive people. i died for your sins. I'm sending you out to forgive sins. So we have confession and absolution as the historic Christian practice of forgiving sins publicly and privately. Not because there's anything special in the pastor at all. But Jesus said, I want my people to hear with certainty my voice of forgiveness so that they would know that their sin is forgiven. It's the same idea. God puts his his, his words upon us and they accomplish that which, which he wants to accomplish. All right, 65, and they said many other things against him blaspheming him, ridiculing God, and he just sits by and takes it. So we get this Isaiah 52, 53 picture is gonna be the theme of the next couple chapters um, where you get this like a, like a sheep before his shears is silent. Jesus is just standing by and taking all of this. So I got a couple of, uh, Bible verses on your, on your handout there. Isaiah 50 verse six, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, as they mock him and beat him. Uh, In in today's gospel, Luke 22, verse 63 and following, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And then 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges ju- judges justly. So Isaiah fifty two fifty three especially is a very clear prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. It's helpful for us to remember because I mean, we can think we got to get our, our, our ordering right. Jesus dies on the cross not because Isaiah said he would. But Isaiah said he would, because he, he did. So like the event, the crucifixion event is the center, centerpiece of history. And so when the Old Testament talks about like Psalm 22 is a classic example of this. We talked about it briefly at our mentor retreat a few months ago. So Psalm 22, which Jesus, my God, Jesus quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus isn't quoting Psalm 22, Jesus is, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is David prophesied about what Jesus is going to say. See? So what, what happens with Jesus here, all of this, what's happening is, is Jesus isn't like going out of his way to fulfill a prophecy, to make sure he can go down the checklist of all the things he's got to do to make sure that the prophecy is clear. But rather, he's just being himself and the prophecies are, are pointing to it. Um, twenty-two, verse sixty-six through seventy-one. The next section it has Jesus now before the council, and this is public. So he's gone through the trial before Annas and Caiaphas, but that was done at night, and so it's not legit according to the, their own their own legal standards. It's funny they're kind of pick and choose on what they're wanting to be legal about. But when day came, now that it's daytime, they can do a trial that counts because a night trial is val is invalid the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, if you are the Christ. Who said that before in the Gospel of Luke? Satan says this, if you are the Christ then, so we think about, it. if I'm saying to you, and if I say to, to, to Henry, if you're such a, if you're such a, if you're so strong, why don't you try to wrestle me to the ground? I'm trying to bend his will. I'm trying to tell him what to do. In essence, I'm trying to control him. I'm in control. So when someone says to you, if, if this, then do that. If this, then you do this. Prove yourself to me. I have more power and control over, over you. That's what's happening. That's what happens with Jesus. Was Satan talking to Jesus? If you are the Christ, do what I'm telling you to do. Ultimately, Jesus doing anything that the devil tells him to do is ultimately saying, okay, devil, you're in charge of me. You can tell me what to do. Uh, same here. If you are the Christ, then tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. So, a couple words about Christ Jesus will not refer to himself as the Christ. Until after his resurrection in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24. So we'll see that when we get to Luke 24. But right now, so the, the everyone keeps talking about him as the Christ, which is ultimately the Messiah. And I've got, I had a, a few words about Jesus as Messiah in our handout from last week, which I neglected to paste into this week. Let me read it so you later. Messiah is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, so Old Testament Messiah translated as Christ. So, just for clarity's sake, because you often see Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, right? This is is a common misunderstanding. We laugh, obviously. A lot of people think, was it? Was it ancient middle name? (laughs) Jesus, I don't know what that means. (laughs) Uh, So Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. Messiah from the Hebrew means chosen or anointed one. So to be anointed is to be set in a particular office, particularly in the Old Testament as a prophet or a king. So Saul and David are anointed as king in the Old Testament. It is to be a set apart, to be appointed for a particular office. More relevantly was that the prophecy is there about the anointed Savior who had come from David's line. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Uh, Isaiah 61, and this will be most familiar. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Remember, this is read in Jesus' like first week of like public ministry, where he goes into the temple to teach and he walks in and he grabs the Isaiah scroll and he reads, we talked about this years ago, we talked about this, but so, so he's reading, this is Luke 4, 18 to 21, he reads from Isaiah 61, and then he sits down. Remember the posture was, you actually, everyone else is standing up and the teacher actually is the one who sits down. So him sitting down wasn't like a mic drop and he's going to go sit down in the back and then be like critiquing from the back row. Instead, said he actually he reads Isaiah 61 and he sits down to begin teaching. And he says, today all of this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's basically, he's calling himself anointed me. To be the one who brings good news to the poor, binds up the broken heart, and so forth. He's calling himself the Anointed One, but indirectly there. And then uh, D- Daniel nine: uh, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an Anointed One, a Prince, there will be seven weeks. He's got a bunch of weeks, and after seventy-two weeks, an Anointed One shall be cut off and have nothing. It's this picture from Daniel nine of the like the second coming. Uh, and, and this involvement of the anointed Christ in the second coming. So we get this, this word Christ is, has direct implications for this promised one and we, we've talked, we always talk about this every year when we get to like Palm Sunday. The people's expectation of the Christ is going to be one of power and strength. In fact, one who would bring about an insurrection. The people thought there would be an insurrectionist. And that's going to have implications for Barabbas coming up in a bit. Because Barabbas is one who was arrested for starting an insurrection. And the name Barabbas, remember Simon Bar-Jonah? Bar-asida means son of. Simon, son of Jonah. So Bar-abbas, Bar-abba. Abba means father. So son of the father. So we got two competing sons of the Father standing there at the feet of Pontius Pilate, awaiting judgment. One is a false one in the way of power and strength, bringing about a a worldly insurrection. And that's what the people wanted. Give us Barabbas, right? So they keep missing the way in which Jesus is going to be the Messiah. Uh, Jesus says to them, "'If I tell you, you will not believe, "'and if I ask you, you will not answer.'" So it's like they know, but kind of, but they don't, they're they unsure, they're denying it. You know. But from now on, the Son of Man, another Messianic title, and that's what he calls, he often calls himself the Son of Man, and that indicates it emphasizes his, his humanity, but it's also a, a, a prophetic term, a, a Messianic term. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Daniel 7 says... So Jesus is calling himself that. He's allowing himself to fulfill that in a prophetic sense, but especially uh, his humanity. And and most especially now, his humanity is important because what he's about to do is the very reason why he needed to become flesh. He needed to die, right, in the way that we die. That's why he became flesh To take on all that we are to redeem all that we are. Uh, but he will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I mean this, we, this, we confess this in the creeds, but for him to be at the right hand of God so the the right hand is often like this, it's like the power of God God will will, will will bring his right hand of power but also I think in a very practical way wherever wherever my right hand is barring any major accidents, wherever my right hand is is also where I am. Right? Where your right hand is, that's where you are. So the right hand of the kingdom of God is in fact, where, where God himself is. So when Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, it's not like he just, so where is that spot? Where we, we think, we're always thinking like in physicalities, where is he going to be located? But it's that he is, he is brought next into the presence of, more direct presence of God, and especially in his power. So after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus goes from always holding back his power and occasionally letting it break out. Remember like he'll be walking along and he sees somebody like dying and just healed. He can't help himself. The the holiness breaks out, but he's holding it back. After the resurrection, he's like walking through doors, teleporting from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. He's not holding back anything anymore, right? So we see this in, in Jesus' uh, after his, ascend, his resurrection, before he ascends, he's in full power. And then now that he has ascended, this is the big theology of the ascension we'll get to in Luke 24. When he ascends into heaven, it's not that he is gone, but he ascends to make himself more present for us here. So as terrible as it is, and we'll talk about it again in Luke 24, but this is what, this is the same thing happens to uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Uh, is that he is killed, but then made more present, right? So in the same way, (laughs) a better way, uh, Jesus ascends into heaven to make himself present for us individually and universally. So now he's no longer standing in his body in Jerusalem, but rather he's making himself present in his body in his supper, making himself present wherever his word is being proclaimed. That's the power and the ascension is that he goes up so that he can go out to us. But that's not yet. He's still holding all that back. He's just telling them it's coming. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And that's like the question. And the whole room goes quiet, right? It's like when uh, Tom Cruise asks Jack Nicholson, did you order the code red? Kind of a moment. Because if he says yes, this becomes very easy to kill him. And he said to them, you say that I am. So it quotes Yahweh. So this I am is not something you just throw around willy-nilly. Really but he has not saying. He doesn't say yes. He says, you've said so. That's not, like, that's not the same as saying yes or no. It's kind of like saying yes. Like you said it. But think about how even we can use that phrase. In different ways, and we can't read between the lines here on, on what what Jesus' face like when he said this. <sighs> you said so, or you got it right. It's hard to say, but all we know is they definitely took it as well. That's all we need to hear. What further testimony do we need? You've heard it. Well, we have heard it ourselves from his lips, and that that's all, that's all they needed to kind of start the dominoes moving forward. They took his lack of denial as as accepting the title. And then they go running off to Pilate and then, uh, and then Herod. So uh, any questions on Luke 22 before we jump into Luke 23? All right, Luke 23. And as, we, as we're about to jump into uh, Luke 23, I have on the bottom of your handout the, the famous picture of this lamb. We have one of our most famous Gerhard Linton hymns a lamb goes uncomplaining forth. So I think it's appropriate as we study the, the crucifixion to kind of reflect on what we're even confessing in our hymns. A lamb goes uncomplaining forth, obviously the imagery from Isaiah 52 and 53. The guilt of all men bearing, and laden with the sins of earth, none else that the burden sharing. Goes patient on, grows weak and faint, to slaughter led without complaint. That spotless life to offer. Bears shame and stripes and wounds and death, anguish and mockery and saith, willing, all this I suffer. Or all this I gladly suffer, as our translation in the hymn of the hymnal goes. Stanza two, the Lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend, the Lamb of God, our Savior, Him God the Father chose to send to gain for us His favor. Go forth, my son, the Father saith, and free men from the fear of death, from guilt and condemnation, the wrath and stripes are hard to bear, but by thy passion, men shall share the fruit of thy salvation. So we get this language of the, the wrath of God, the stripes. We get this, and that's coming straight from the Old Testament too, but the stripes is going to bring to mind the scourging that's about to take place of his, of his back. And yet, his his life is spotless. He's going on without complaint, and he is bearing on his own back the shame and the stripes and the wounds that we deserve. Luke 23. and your handout I say, there is no explicit teaching of Jesus in the pre-crucifixion trial accounts for us to unpack. It's simply the recounting of the events themselves. Here as we approach the center of the Christian confession, there's nothing for us to do or even for us to really understand, but we simply hear it and receive it. So it's funny, like when I look at commentaries, and listen to commentators and stuff on Luke, when you, it's like you'll have these massive treatises going through, because you've got these thick teachings of Jesus, the parable of the sower, a rich man of Lazarus, on and on, so many rich imagery in Luke. And you get to the end, it's like, Luke 23 and 24 say he's quickly, he's killed, and he, it's like, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot what we do with it. We can give historical analysis to like, how crucifixion worked and some other points, but it's, it's I think it's, uh, it's a good picture of the Christian life. Like this, is the main thing, the most important thing of all Christianity, we're we are forced to simply say, uh, "I don't, I don't know what's going on here," except, "Amen," that it was for me. Um, and yet, I'm going to find a way to make a couple weeks out of it at least. So, <laughs> Jesus before Pilate. <laughs> Uh, Jesus, But we don't get a lot of, we don't get too many words from Jesus, especially, because he's, he's, again, as, as a lamb before the shearers is silent. The most helpful words we're going to get from Jesus are going to be on the cross, and then after his resurrection from the dead. Then the whole company, verse, verse 1 of chapter 23, the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. So the order that's going to be taking place here is he started with Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest and the father-in-law of the high priest, And then in the daytime, Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate, and then handed over to the people. So Jesus is just getting dragged. It seems like he's getting dragged all over the place, but this is all gonna be taking place in very close proximity. And in fact, normally both Herod and Pilate would be living elsewhere, but everybody's in town because what's happening that weekend? The Passover, like this is the biggest, it's like Ribfest Naperville back in the glory days, right? Everybody's here, everybody's together. Let's see. The whole company of them arose and brought them to, uh, before Pilate. Why would they take him to Pilate, by the way? He's, he, they said, that's all we need to hear. He said, he's the son of God. Let's do it. Why don't they just take him out back and stone him? What's that? Yeah, you can't just go kill people willy-nilly. There's got to be some, there's got to be more. So they can, but they can get Pilate to do it and get Pilate to sign off on it. So what they're going to be after here in this chapter, at least the first few verses of this chapter is, trying to convince Pilate to, to, to crucify, to, to execute Jesus. Now, I need, I need to, I'll need study up on this more for next week, but it's interesting that after the crucifixion and resurrection, they don't, they don't give Stephen the same benefit of the doubt, right? When Stephen's, like, cleaning tables, they pull Stephen aside. You have Saul kind of leading this, the, the intense martyrdom that's taking place in the first century. So there might have been some kind of legal... Uh, more, more open legalization of, of uh, killing people, or maybe it's simply that Jesus hasn't really done enough. You have the eyewitnesses, but they they keep hearing, okay, he's he's basically said he's the son of God, right, guys, right? And he, let's take him to Pilate. <laughs> Whereas with Stephen and everybody after the resurrection, it's more clear. People say, yes, I believe in Jesus, that he is God, and they're more open about it. and That's a direct blasphemy. So I think that the, the law, even from Roman's perspective, Rome would allow the Jew to kill to stone someone for breaking their, their laws. Um but I'm gonna get clear if, I'll, I'll clarify on that for, for next time. I would say Jesus looked for Rome knows Stephen was. A lot of people knew about him at that time and seemed a lot more chance that if they execute it, he's gonna get back to quiet. And especially this Already, we, we know the growing tension around this because they avoided arresting him during the day. As Jesus has said, why didn't you come arrest me during the temple when I was, when I was teaching openly? So they are, like you said, they're avoiding that, that crowd. He's raised Lazarus from the dead, allegedly. But that was huge following of people because they had followed Jesus out there. They saw the resurrection. I mean, imagine how that, that's going to spread like wildfire. And now you've got a huge following of people wanting to see something great. And then he's arrested here. And you can just imagine the tents situation growing so yeah let's let's get let's blame this on Pilate and get him to do it and they so Pilate uh, governed Judea from 26 to 36 AD and he would be the chief Roman ad- administrator so remember so uh, Jerusalem Israel the nation of Israel was under Roman rule so you have, like, the Roman people who are there governing, but also, Rome is trying to, because it's 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 not economical or practical to just have your own people governing the whole world, so you're, you're trying to, like, make sure that there's local representation from, from Israel still running the show there, but we're just kind of making sure that they're doing their job. So the local representative, the Jewish guy, is Herod, uh, but then... Pilate's ultimately more authoritative than Herod, but Herod still has local rule, and that gets back to that law. So for Herod, it would be cool to kill Jesus for blasphemy um, if he had broken certain rules according to the Jewish law, which was still in effect. But then Pilate is even over that. So they've they've gone straight to the Roman guy. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man to be misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Is that true? None of that's true. Um, so um, it, it starts to kind of show, it, it they're, they're putting their, what they expected the Messiah to be. They wanted a Messiah to be this revolutionary who's going to mislead the nation, or at least lead the nation away from Rome, say don't give tribute to Caesar, and come as the king. That's the picture of the messiah and Jesus is not that and yet they're blaming Jesus for it to get him killed. <laughs> and yet that's what they wanted him to be and because he's not that thing is why they're rejecting him. Yeah. Say, the the they, they cut straight to the chase because it, Yeah. That, so yeah, very good. So the, the Pax Romana, that Rome was so proud of this peace that they're well known for, and he's disturbing the peace, and that's no good. That's bad for Rome's reputation. So we got to end this. So so Pilate, of all these accusations, he's most interested in the king. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you calling yourself the king? Because he follows up on that. Now remember, they had just they got mad at Jesus earlier for his blasphemy. For saying he's the son of God. They don't bring this up. But that was the reason why they wanted him dead. And they don't bring it up. They're making up all these charges to get him killed. Uh, the, and he answered, he answered him, you have said so. Similarly to the answer he gave earlier, you say so. Then Pilate, it's something interesting happens here. And I think that I, if you, when you start to kind of picture it with the, picture the authority and clout that Pontius Pilate has. As a local, I think uh, the the movie that shows pictures this well, um, I haven't seen this far in the movie, but the the idea of Pontius Pilate is very powerful and very arrogant and understandably so. And so you got these random Jews with this random guy who's claiming to be God, but you don't care about, you don't believe in that God. I mean, for us, it's like it's Jesus, give him some respect, man. But Pontius Pilate doesn't care about this random dude who's not even doing anything impressive. So now he's making this big stake, and the whole thing is just an inconvenience for Pilate. And so now he's given time to this trial, and they're saying, he's saying he's king. Are you a king? And he's like, well, I guess, I guess that's what you've said. So now the only, the only testimony is hearsay, and, it, and it, all of a sudden it hits Pilate. Why am I wasting my time with this stupid situation? Get, get out of here, right? And that's kind of the attitude that Pontius Pilate has from this point on. Who knows about? Who cares about truth? Later, he'll say. Um, And even we're not going to get to it today, but like even when he's threefold times proven to be innocent completely, Pilate's so annoyed he still says, "Well, we'll just punish him and then and then release him." So he has him scourged, which is extremely violent. Most people would have easily died from that. He does that to an innocent man. So don't, don't have any heart of sympathy for Pontius Pilate. He, so knowing it three times, he's innocent. He still scourges him. And then he, he goes to let him go. And then people are like, nope, not good enough. you got to kill him. Right? Uh, so I think part of the reason why Pontius Pilate has Jesus scourged is he's just annoyed by the whole thing. Because he, 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 sees, he sees the Jews as like subhuman. The whole thing is annoying for him. So next week, uh, it, it, we're, we're at time, so next week we'll pick up at verse at verse 4 and continue this conversation before Pilate. Um, any comments or questions from from uh, the interaction there? Yes. I the Jews could kill people. Uh, remember the lady who was Yeah. a so stopped him, but... Allegedly. I mean, it's not in the original manuscripts, but... It's a text criticism criticism joke that no one got? Yeah, no, you're you're right. The, um, yeah. So you're right, it would have been been fair for them to do that Uh, if there were certain
1: allegations,
0: like adultery, in that case. Yeah? So prior to prior to Nero and the, and the extreme persecution of the first century, the Christians were understood to be just a sect of the Jews. And since they were a sect of the Jews, the Jews were given the authority to go handle the matter. When there, if you blasphemy in your own religion, do what your religion says to do to them. Got it. Good. Good. Thank you. Any other comments or questions there? We'll pick up with uh, chapter 23 next week. The Lord be with you.